Good morning, ladies. How are y'all? This uh, it's hard to believe we're already in December. Yes, but it uh, is a joy to to be together today. Uh, today we be, begin our study of the book of Zechariah. It's a very exciting book. It's not a short book like Haggai, and so we're going to have to. Uh, take a little bit more of a bird's eye view of the book of Zechariah, where we were able to do more of a a snail's view or worm view of the book of Haggai, but we're still going to work our way through it. But before we go there, we have a marvelous annual, a year verse. You may see it there on your sheet, or maybe you know it from the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2, which was used fairly recently in a Sunday evening sermon, I believe. Okay, well, let's uh, say or read our year verse. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Malachi 4.2. turns to the second chapter of Haggai because, because I spent so much time in it. It just turns. There you go. Excellent. Well, this is a great uh, memory verse, and it's very appropriate uh, this season of the Advent, of the joy. Uh, imagine, I don't know if you've ever, I've, I'm from Texas, so I've seen calves leap, little ones, and it is so it's so remarkable. They're filled with life and joy and vitality. And that's part of the picture here. Uh, when the son of righteousness comes. And uh, that's what we're celebrating this uh, month. And we have a very exciting passage that is very relevant to the incarnation. Well, will read from Luke. This is uh, Luke's description of the birth of Jesus foretold. And the words of the angel uh, to Mary, for he will be great. Um, This is from Luke 1, verse 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the fulfillment of what we find promised in the night visions of Zechariah. And I think for your women and for all of us to grab hold of the hope of the promises of God spoken in Zechariah, for days of distress and darkness. We all can face and experience that in our own lives individually. As a, as a society, as a church or congregation, there can be those days. And hope is the hope of God fulfilling his promises. And the reality of that hope in our lives as we respond to God and his word by faith I have a little quote at the very end of the notes. I think it's in the insert that you find inside. Hope. This is from our study book uh, from page 111 of the next to the last word. Hope is the trademark of faith. An experience of hope will always be in proportion to the view of God. It is our view of God that is stretched as we look at Zechariah, this first section of Zechariah. And it's not a small section. We're talking six chapters. But it is filled with such great light and encouragement and help uh, for us. So what I, I want us to say, just a few brief words of introduction uh, from Zachari- about Zechariah. And I'm drawing from our study book in this first section of my notes. The, uh, Michael Barrett does a great job in his book 
in the book of Haggai, he was able to go through and give us somewhat of an exposition. When it comes now to the book of Zechariah, which is significantly longer than the 600 words of the book of Haggai, he, uh, he, he goes to uh, not airplane mode, he goes to aerospace mode <laughs> looking at it. Now, I want to do more than that. I want us to have at least some understanding of the, the thrust, the flow, get the big picture of what the book of Zechariah is about and what, is, what does it mean for our lives today. So we're going to look. So what I've done, I've taken from his book largely in this first little section, and then I've provided some exposition of these night visions and of the crowning event of the night visions at the end of chapter 6 as well. So uh, I'll refer to some scripture references, but I'm not, we're not going to read chapters 1 through 6. Y'all can do that. That'll take our, I don't even know if we can get that done in the duration of time. But, uh, um, you know, we know that Zechariah is uh, contemporary with the prophet Haggai. He's younger than Haggai. We don't know his actual age, but he was one who returned with Zerubbabel to Jerusalem. He was part of the original work that had begun on rebuilding the temple. And like Haggai, he very much wanted that work to continue. He knew that the people had gotten distracted, that their priorities were skewed, that they needed a new understanding of the importance of the work of the Lord and the particular work to which he, the Lord God, was calling them to. One of the main reasons why they returned to the land of promise. And so he's recommissioning them. He's sending them back to do the work. Uh, God uses each of his people and he distributes their gifts and their personalities according to his good and sovereign purposes. It's a wonderful thing that we are all different from, that we're different from one another. We have different dispositions and different approaches. Uh, as you have read in the book of Zechariah, perhaps already, you'll notice that there is a difference between what we read in the book of Haggai and what we find here. God uses varying gifts for his glory, for the advancement of his word and gospel and kingdom. Um, um, we, we, read in, um, we read in chapter 1, verse 1, that it was in the eighth month of the second year of um, Darius or Darius the king that um, Zechariah began his work. He uh, served as a prophet for about 50 years. That's a lengthy time to be faithful at making the words, the Lord's word known. And there's this interesting reference about Zechariah spoken by our Savior in uh, Matthew's gospel that, uh, that he was killed between the temple and the altar. There's mystery here. We don't know exactly. Uh, there is opposition to the word and truth of God. Uh, details are not given to us, but certainly was a faithful servant of the Lord. Like many Old Testament prophets, his name is not insignificant. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. What a great name for a prophet calling the people of God back to the work of God. Uh, that God is a God who remembers. And he remembers their difficulty. He remembers their challenges, their suffering. He remembers their unfaithfulness as well and desires that they change and repent. But uh, the word remember is very much in that family of words related to God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. And so that is one of the themes that is underscored in the book of Zechariah, that what God promises comes to pass. That's part of what it means to live by faith, to have hope in his word and in his promises. 
And that is the very thrust of these night visions that we'll see shortly. But before we look at the night visions, in the opening verses of the book of Zechariah, we learn, we learn a great deal about what is the priority of a prophet. While he wanted them to return to building the temple, he knew that their own lives needed spiritual maintenance or rebuilding. That they needed to turn towards God. That is associated with the word that we find in the Bible for repentance, which literally means to turn about, to do U-turn, to change your thinking and your action uh, to an understanding and approach that corresponds with the Lord. He's calling them to repentance. But it isn't a harsh repentance. It's, it's a gracious repentance with a reminder that as they turn to the Lord, that He will turn as well. He will turn to them. And it's this picture of covenant fellowship that God has made us for Himself. And God has made us that we might know Him and enjoy Him and make Him our delight, knowing that He is our true satisfaction, our true joy is the Lord in a relationship with Him. That is what is of utmost importance. And so that is really where the book begins, as He warns them not to be like their fathers, but instead that they would return from their evil ways, their evil deeds, that they might turn to the Lord, knowing that the Lord will turn again to them. It's a marvelous, a marvelous thing, a marvelous beginning of the book. And it really sets the stage for ultimately what this book is all about. The people needed renewal. They needed to be revitalized in their relationship with the living and true God. They needed revival. As the temple was in shambles, in rubble, so their lives were, as they turned away from God, going in their own direction, their own priorities, he calls them to return, to return to God, to return to his word, to return to a life of delight in him. I'm going to stop. There's more that could be said, but we're not getting get into these night visions if I get all caught up in this first section. But it does set a marvelous stage. And what a refreshing reminder at Christmas time. Um, We can get so carried away and caught up with marvelous, wonderful, good things that we can miss the most essential and important things. Uh, So let's uh, let's look at these night visions. Visions. After he gives this call to repentance, he has uh, visions. And here I'm actually drawing once again from Michael Barrett in our study book in this section, a vision of encouragement at the very top of the next page, uh, where visions, in visions, the Lord reveals his word to some of his prophets. They are personal visions. It isn't group visions here. They're personal. They're internal within the prophet. Uh, The Bible will speak of those who are seers, referring to those who have visions. Normally, the prophet is an active participant. And it is something unlike dreams, which even Pharaoh had dreams, who Pharaoh did not know the Lord. Uh, It is those that have visions seem to be those that have a spiritual relation with the Lord, uh, spiritual perception and understanding of God. And these visions that we find in the scriptures are typically predictive prophecy of apocalyptic nature, of end times, of God fulfilling his promises, bringing to consummation uh, what his plans and purposes are. So uh, Zechariah is a seer who records these eight night visions in the opening section of his book. And they all occur 
on the same night. And the same year, yeah, that's what, can you imagine? I don't know if y'all ever have dreams and maybe have more than one dream. I remember last night I had a dream about, about some dogs that we had taken in, some stray dogs. And they kept on coming out of this one little, one little room and they just kept on coming. <laughs> you can talk with me later if you, if you can interpret the dream. But anyway, uh, here, can you imagine having eight Visions. But imagine these visions were designed for the encouragement of the Lord's people and of the prophet himself. But he he specifies it's again in the second year of King Darius. Uh, He began his ministry a few months earlier in the eighth month. And this is now in the 11th month. uh, the month, and he uses the Babylonian name, which is kind of interesting, for the month, uh, Shabbat, um, here. And uh, he goes into these particular night visions. And what I'd like to do is in the, our time, and we'll go through a few of them, then we'll take a little break and talk about them or have any discussion or comments. Then we'll go through a few more But I'd like for us to look at these eight night visions, look at each one of them, and then talk about the very final aspect of uh, a crowning that's referred to in the second latter half of chapter six. So um, Zechariah is in his sleep, and then he saw in the night a man riding on a red horse, verse eight. And this man was standing among the myrtle trees Um, and uh, there were other horses of various colors uh, nearby and uh, I I really get to the heart of what these particularly in this first one uh, this vision is all about the man on the red horse is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ a uh, pre-incarnate appearance Well, that is in Revelation. There's some people that equate the two. There are people that do not. I'm not. I'm going to be real careful as we go through these and not overinterpret. No, but I just wanted to know what you think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he said, "No, I just want to know because I just I'll, I'll just agree with what you say because you know more than I do." So just tell me. Well, no, you know, I I I really want to study it a little more to be honest. Okay. I'm to, on that, I'll get back with you. How about that? I'll let you know what I think. Sure. There are. Yes. Let me get back with you on that. So he he he's on a horse. There are other horses. This is the angel of the Lord. Uh, which is, appears many times in the Bible in Joshua 5. It's the commander of the Lord's army. Uh, many, many, many times. He, he, is, he and his, uh, the other horses, and assuming there are riders on those horses, are patrolling the whole earth. They're observing, they're surveying, they're spies, they're observers. They know all that is happening. And they report that the earth, and this means the nations, the pagan nations are at rest. They are quiet. They are peaceful. But what is underlined is that the people of God are in a state of disquiet. Uh, They're in a, a state of having experience difficulty and opposition and here is a marvelous uh, description of our coming savior the lord of glory present with his people he's among the myrtles as it says here he's in the valley he is with his people he is nearby uh, and it is a beautiful picture of our 
Savior, uh, that he is the one who is Emmanuel, the one who is with us, the one who promises, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And at the end of this vision, there is reference to an intercession that he is the great high priest who does intercede and pray for his people. That God's displeasure against them and their sin was for a fixed period of time of 70 years. But while his anger, his displeasure lasted for moments, his faithfulness endures forever. He is a God who is zealous for his people and for the, his and for the city of Jerusalem itself. Uh, that's kind of a that, that's it in a thumbnail, this first vision. And it's this idea of God is in control, He's sovereign. And yet he's patrolling the earth, and yet he cares. He is nearby. He is with his people. Part of this first vision is that while the nations are at peace and at rest, his own people are not. And this is brought up in the second vision in chapters 1, 18 through 21, is behold, Zechariah sees four horns. Now, horns were a symbol of an animal's power. I mean, still hunters will mount uh, horns. Or, uh, it's deer season. Uh, a buck with many, uh, many horns might be perhaps mounted. And uh, those horns are used both defensively and offensively. We're in a great spiritual battle. And the people of God has have always been since the earliest of days. And here is a promise that the Lord in his righteous anger will burn against those who oppose his people. Um, And what is in view in particular in Zechariah's day were these foreign nations. And there were many that were coming against and historically had come against the people of God, the Assyrians and Babylonians, now the Persians. Uh, and uh, they were opposed to God and to God's people. But as he looks and sees the horns, he sees those who are described as craftsmen. And these craftsmen... And I don't want to get into it because we're already at 23 after, but these craftsmen might be those that, that deal with steel, metallurgy, uh, perhaps those that uh, uh, deal with animal uh, uh, shoeing uh, of horses and things. Uh, but these craftsmen uh, are those that are sprung into action uh, to handle these hostile horns to frustrate their purposes against the people of God. They are instruments of divine intervention and God's divine wrath against the wicked. And what do they do? We read in verse 21, um, that these have come to terrify the horns, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah, to scatter it. God is the protector of his people. God is with his people. He cares about us when there are those opposed to us. How relevant this is for our own day is we live in a day of growing hostility. Um, I saw a bumper sticker that <coughs> I'm starting to see like anti-Christmas bumper stickers. Saw one the other day in a car. <coughs> uh, 
something as benign as Christmas is in our the way our culture celebrates it, you know. Uh, and so just there's a growing hostility. But the Lord will set things straight. He has his his instruments of destruction uh, in his perfect timing. Uh, it doesn't say whether these are angelic instruments. It may have been other nations. It, it, the, he has his means and he has his good and noble purposes. And uh, um, those who oppose his people will be cast down. We can rest assuredly in that. Let's look at one more, then we'll take a little pause. And that is then, Zechariah, after this vision, he sees that there's a man, a man in Jerusalem, and he's measuring. He's measuring, this is in chapter 2, he has a measuring line in his hand. And he asks, where are we going? To measure Jerusalem to see what is the width and what is its length. And uh, it's quite a remarkable thing. Uh, He he gives a, a report of his measurements that he that he finds in verses I think eight and nine. Uh, no, no, hold on for that for a second. And so he, this man with a measuring line, goes and he measures Jerusalem, and it far out reaches his expectations. Remember, Jerusalem was somewhat in rubble. But now as this man goes, they even need a measuring line now. They did probably didn't even need it in Zechariah's day. But now he goes and there is growth. There's abundance. There's, uh, it's a city without walls. God himself is protecting the city with a, a wall of fire, as it were. And uh, it's very much how that God has done great things beyond what we could ever ask or think or imagine that God has brought restoration for his glory, the wonders of what God will do with Jerusalem, that God greatly supplies all our needs according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus, and that his people are precious to him. That's where I was starting to go for a second here when I made reference to verse 8 and 9. Um, uh, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Um, and it's, it's very clear that the Lord delights and loves his people. You know how when I first started learning to put a contact in my eye, it was a very challenging and difficult thing. Anything at that point in my life coming to my eye, my eye was very self-protective and defensive. I had to train it to not do that. And it was quite an effort for me. Uh, but, but the Lord's people are the apple of his eye. His delight and love is for them. He is protective of them. He's jealous of them in, in the right sense of a good and righteous jealousy and care for his people. And so he protects his people with all of his resources. Uh, and it's just a marvelous picture. Each of these are a description of the covenant. You will be your, my people and I will be your God. I will dwell with you. We find in the New Testament, God came and Jesus said, I'll make my home with you. I'll dwell in you. Then we find even in heaven, uh, the very dwelling of the presence of God for all uh, eternity. It's such, and and as we live in a day like, maybe a little bit like, uh, perhaps in some respects like Zechariah, where there is (laughs) spiritual decay and a measure of some darkness, uh, it uh, is a great reminder that God is doing great and mighty things beyond what we can ask or think or even imagine. Let me just pause here for a moment about uh, any uh, comments y'all have on these first couple of night visions. Right. Preaching. Now they obviously weren't like back to back. 
bumping into each other. They were probably in different locations. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, the, that they were both at the same time. Yes, you know? I mean, they, it's very likely. We we don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be careful not to speculate. It's likely they knew each other, obviously, and were probably had a friendship. I, I, I want to be careful not to yeah. go beyond scripture, but I mean, they had a common cause and had a love for the people and for the Lord. And obviously, more than one prophet was needed, though. <laughs> yeah. And, and God knew that they needed to hear the, uh, the, the voice of Haggai and his directness and the encouragement that came from uh, uh, these night visions and things of Zechariah. God used us both for his glory. That, yes, he was pretty young. Okay. We don't know his exact age, I don't think, but he, okay. he was. He came back with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Okay. Right. Did I miss the email with this attached, or did we not? No, I haven't, I haven't said that out yet. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I wanted to be able to maybe put okay. this to some bullet points. Yeah. A, um, um, a short version for... My, my okay. Other thoughts or comments? Yep. Uh, okay. Can you just confirm or sure. the horns were against God's people? Yes. And the craftsmen were the people. I mean, were the good guys? Absolutely. <laughs> they. You've got it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think the Hebrew kind of has somewhat metal in the word. So those that tend to be people that do forging, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. But um, I, I tried to do as much reading as I could. This covers, in most commentaries, this covers a lot of pages. I know. Okay, uh, so do you see the relevance of this for your women today and this month? And I think that's something to drive home. People need the reminder of God's promises and the hope. Even though we look back and see that, that hope fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, we need to be reminded and remind ourselves that he's a God of promise and fulfillment. And he will fulfill all the promises he's made, even the ones that are still yet to come. So we need to be people living by faith the same way as Zechariah calls the people of his day. The immediate answer of God himself to dwell with us is Jesus himself. I mean, that's a, clearly a prophecy of his coming. True. Absolutely. Well, let's... Pr- somewhere that there's more prophecies of Jesus in this little book than almost anywhere. I did preach through the book of Zechariah, my first charge, and uh, I'm trying to think how many months, how many sermons, there were plenty. I guess if we just remember what I think, I guess Emily had, I've heard Emily had said, we would not study this otherwise, the women would not either, and so taking this little glimpse of it can help us get through it. Absolutely. To think about yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's press on because, uh, you know, these visions point to the Lord Jesus. And perhaps we, we see that in each of them, but especially in this next night vision at the beginning of chapter three with uh, Joshua, the high priest, in his filthy garments, the terrible stain and guilt of sin of our sin before God and the removal of his garments. All of this points to why our Savior came. Uh, it points to the gospel. It points to the good news, the reality of our sin, uh, the filth. Our sin is as filthy rags that are removed through uh, God's gracious work of forgiveness, the work of the Lord Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ. You know, you cannot separate Bethlehem and Calvary. The two are intricately related. Uh, And so Jesus came. 
you know, that he may eventually die. He might live a righteous life and make a perfect sacrifice. And here is the receiving of, of new garments, a picture even of, of cleansing, of new life, new birth, the imputation, the giving of Christ's righteousness, the exchange where he took our sin upon himself, our filthy rags, as it were, bore the penalty at the cross and has cleansed us, giving us uh, robes of righteousness. It's a glorious picture here. It's also, also the reality of how Satan seeks to browbeat the believer, to destroy, to seek to condemn. He is the accuser of the brethren. Um, and you know the well-known story perhaps of Martin Luther when he was in um, uh, the tower translating the Bible and thought that the devil himself had come to accuse him. <coughs> and he had a list of things he had done wrong that the devil brought that in this vision or rather dream perhaps that that Martin Luther had. And Luther said, well, that isn't enough. That isn't all of it. And he added more to the list. But then he, at the very bottom, drew a line and said, the blood of the Lord Jesus covers me and all my sin. That's the picture here of the forgiveness of the gospel through the righteous sacrifice of our Savior from glory. Sure. And he looks at us and he says, I think I recognize that robe you have on. <laughs> I think it's my son. It was a yes. sweet picture. That is. Come on in. Yes. <clears throat> well, here are the promises. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And there could be various uh, fulfillments of that. But clearly, when the Lord Jesus made that final and ultimate sacrifice for our sins, the iniquity has been removed as far as the east is from the west. And then he, in chapter 4, has a vision, a vision of uh, a large golden candlestick that is fed by oil from two living olive trees. It really is a beautiful picture um, ultimately points uh, to uh, the light of the gospel, uh, the light of the Christian bearing witness to the Lord Jesus. But what is really a main theme of this night vision is the inexhaustible supply and power of the Holy Spirit, that God would provide His Holy Spirit to sustain, to fuel his people in ministry and in service. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was given to craftsmen and to others for particular work. Even we read in the work of the temple and other callings to which God had sent his people uh, to do. It really is a marvelous, a marvelous description. And our trust is in the working of the Holy Spirit Verse 6 is a key verse in this particular um, night vision. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, might is a human ability and skill, ingenuity, power, military prowess, um, um, power is the exercise of that might for um, in various endeavors. But in the building of the kingdom, in the expanse of the gospel, what is essential is the working of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Judas Judas had a ministry of healing. Judas proclaimed the gospel. But it seemed very clear that ultimately he was bereft of the Holy Spirit. 
So one can have great abilities uh, and yet miss what it's all about. And so even for the church, as we go about ministry, we want to do it not trusting in ourselves or our abilities or our own power or relying on our own resources, but looking to that inexhaustible supply of the Spirit of God that provides all that we need, even in our need, even in our weakness, even in the day of what is seen as a small thing. Uh, Remember, this goes back to Haggai. When they were building the temple, those that had seen the previous temple began to weep. It's spoken of also in uh, the book of Ezra. Began to weep. Because they, the, previous, the glory of the previous temple compared to the temple that they were rebuilding. And the Lord reminded them of the great glory of this temple because the king of glory would come to this temple. And it was a day of small things in their own thinking. And with the Lord, ultimately, there is no day of small things. There is nothing that is insignificant. Or as Francis Schaeffer captures in the title of his book, there are no small people. I think that is part of the title of his book. Uh, No little people, perhaps, is the title of the book. Uh, And so God is using his people to accomplish his great and mighty purposes. Yes. Probably. Whatever opposes God's purses would be purposes. It is purposes. Should be purposes. There were a couple of other uh, fun little things in here. <laughs> Leave that to your good perusal. But, you know, that actually raises, that. Uh, that's really helpful. You know, there, there is opposition for the people of God. Just in this description of these mountains that were there, uh, that the Lord God will... Uh, whatever is opposing him, well, he is able to set it aside for his noble purposes. Many have speculated about who are these two anointed ones. Um, and it's very likely that it's referring to Joshua and Zerubbabel, uh, who represented the spiritual and civil leaders. Uh, but we can have confidence of the Holy Spirit's presence and help because we know the Lord Jesus as we come to him by faith. And we serve Christ not on our own steam, but on the power and help of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at one more of these, then we'll pause and talk about them. (coughs) The flying scroll. The next vision here in the opening of chapter 5. A, lar- a large scroll flying across. Uh, I don't know if you've been to uh, Myrtle Beach and seen the banner planes. As I read this, I couldn't help but think about those planes flying with a large script trailing behind. Although this is a very different message. This is the uh, message of the immutable, unchanging law of Almighty God to which no one can escape and to which everyone ultimately is accountable that God is the one who is altogether righteous and holy and perfect and pure and nothing but purity and holiness can be in his presence. Um, A reminder of our need of the Lord Jesus and the penalty of breaking his word in law that no one is able to escape Uh, the consequences of their sin other than the safety that's found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus himself. Isn't it marvelous that there is security and safety in him? That there is a place uh, of security and refuge against God's Uh, righteous zeal, his burning holiness. Uh, There's ground that has already been burned or burned back. 
so that when the fire of his righteous wrath comes, it passes by just as the angel of the Lord came. But the blood on the lintels of the, on the Passover, the angel passed by those homes and brought judgment elsewhere. Let's pause here just for a moment. These last three uh, about Joshua and his uh, new his change of clothes, these candle this candlestick, and the flying scroll. Any thoughts or comments? You see the Jesus is the branch, and the candlestick is the Holy Spirit, and then the wrath of God being the curse. So you see yeah. the Trinity in this. Sure, mm-hmm. it's all about the Lord, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, excellent. Any other thoughts? Can you characterize these visions as visions of hope? Yes, very much. That's for the bullet, for the believer. For yeah. The bullet points. Yeah. No, that's a great bullet point. These are visions, uh, definitely of of hope, and uh, I think designed for the encouragement of his people who were fledgling and struggling and trying to get back to the proper priorities that the Lord has for them and the task to which he was calling them to. Well, let's press on then. We've got a couple more to look at. In chapter 5, the second half of chapter 5, beginning at verse 5, is a vision of the woman in the measurement bowl, ephoph, the ephoph or aphoph. This one is a very large measuring the dimensions are specifically given to us here. But this woman in the basket stands for and represents wickedness. Uh, a lead cover a lead cover is placed over this <coughs> this measuring basket. excuse me, this basket for measurement, and it is carried away, carried away, a long ways away, back into the land of Babylon and placed there, as it were, fixed in some of the language depicts a temple, something that would be used in the temple structure. Um, This certainly is a vision of hope. It's a vision that Evil, wickedness, and sin will one day not only be destroyed, but removed, will be carried away. I don't know about you. For me, this is a great vision for my own struggle with sin and battle with it will one day come to an end and sin will be removed from us in heaven for all eternity. We will see him and as it were, be like him, and that we're being we're cleansed and purified forever. <coughs> this sin is carried away, this wickedness to no longer molest and trouble, disturb the peace of the people of God. What a triumphant thing. It's uh, similar to what we even find in the book of Revelation, where uh, Sin and Satan are cast, as it were, into the very pit of hell to fires that will not disturb the people of God any longer. Let's look at this last night vision, the eighth one. There's some parallel. It's found in chapter six, verses one to eight. And there are some parallels with this final vision and the first vision. Remember the first vision? There was the man on the horse, and there were other accompanying horses. Here are chariots drawn by strong horses. Just as in the first vision, they were patrolling the earth. Here, these horses and chariots are sent in various directions. (coughs) Uh, Sent to the north, sent to the west sent to the Mesopotamia. Uh, It really is a a similar theme. And I think the prophet is circling back to where he began. 
These are like bookends. This first vision and this final vision uh, describing that God is the one who is in charge, that he is the one who's in control of these events, that he's working out his good and providential purposes for his people and for um, his own name and glory. You know, having dealt with some of the spiritual issues of the people in visions two through seven, he now returns to this theme of the first vision. Remember in the first vision, there is a little bit of tension in that there's quiet and peace in the world, and yet there's trouble and turmoil with God's people. Here he comes back to that and he describes uh, the power and the worldwide scope of God's rule and reign and mission throughout the world. Uh, it, it is an incredible thing. These chariots come from um, a bronze mountain. Things that are seen as fixed and impregnable. Uh, things that are certain and sure. And they are caring about God's certain purposes to accomplish his purposes on this earth. They've been waiting obediently and patiently until the time when they are dispatched for his glory to do his bidding. <coughs> and they are dispatched to the place where there are Israel's enemies. Now they went through the whole earth, I think underscoring the um, power and authority, the dominion of God Almighty and of the coming Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And they, are, they meet out vengeance on the Lord's enemies of those who have oppressed the Lord's people, peoples. And the white horse is the one that ultimately brings stability in the land. The people began in turmoil in this first night vision. And now, now there is, the people began in turmoil, but there is peace and quiet throughout the world. Now, in this final night vision, there is peace with the people of God, but there is trouble with the world opposed to God as God brings his righteous judgment against the wicked. In this final section, we come to a crowning event, as it were, in verses 9 to 15, in the great climax of these night visions, in which Zechariah is commanded to go and to immediately crown Joshua the high priest. <coughs> now the high priest was a priest. He was not a civil leader. He was not a king. <coughs> but, but Zechariah is instructed to go and prepare a crown. And there's some description of the ornateness and fanciness of this crown of several, several rings of various materials and the workmen and those who will be assisting them in this uh, endeavor. And Joshua here is standing as a figure of the king to come, the Lord Jesus, who is both a prophet, excuse me, who is both a priest like Joshua and a king as well. Psalm 110 is probably the most quoted psalm in our New Testament. And it brings out this thing that Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and yet he is also a king. Um, he is David's Lord. And here, this is the picture as this branch, this branch makes reference to the fact that, that Jesus, this coming Messiah, is of David's line and lineage, as we read in Second Samuel chapter 7, that he is legitimate descendant of the Davidic line. He is the one who will build 
the temple of God. Jesus, indeed, will build the temple. He himself is the temple of God. When he comes and gives his spirit to his people, we read in the New Testament, he's made us into a living temple in 1 Peter. And in heaven itself, there will not be a temple. There is no need for a temple, for it itself and all of its glory and fullness is a temple. There's a great destiny that awaits the people of the Lord. This priest, unlike all the other priests, is seated because he's finished his once for all work. I'll make a reference to the book of Hebrews that has uh, reference to this as well, that he is now making intercession, pleading his righteous wounds for his once for all sacrifice for his people. And this ends where we say, praise God for such a savior such a Savior born at Bethlehem, who died at Calvary, who is risen, who is accomplishing his work, who is seated at the right hand of God, and who will for all eternity fulfill all the promises that are made, for they are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Yes. Yes, there is, a, there is certainly a, that aspect of the impact of the people of God in the world about and that even Gentiles will come in. There's a later reference to this in the book of Zechariah that is a very significant verse in the great awakening in America that we'll look at as well on a similar theme of the Gentiles. How about other comments? Do you, do you see the hope here? The encouragement can is something I want your women to be able to really cling onto and to grasp in the Lord this Christmas season. Because we need that, don't we? And I really loved your comparison of the temple leading rebuilding and lives leading rebuilding. And that's just like, yeah. Yeah, I love that too. You know, I always pick up an outline with women, and I'm thinking what I might do is with each of the visions, I'm, I'm coming up with a God's blank blank, something they can fill in. And I've got God's patrolling presence for the first one, God's prevailing power, they're not going to be all alliterated. Um, the third one I haven't come up with yet, fourth, God's gracious forgiveness, you know, just to kind of be able to capsulize it. And you know, when you get that worked out, uh, feel free to reply to the email that has a uh, uh, the notes, because that will get to all the other Bible moderators. Y'all feel free to use that to share ideas or things that could be helpful to help one another. I think the second chapter nine, the foundation of hope, really brought it home to me. Yes. That God has given us the promise of Christ, and then God has given us the promise in Revelation. And our hope is... Well, the hymn, my hope is built on nothing hmm. less than, than Jesus and all else. Is, and then you have that hope foundation. Right. You have faith. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just a really cool picture for Christmas. Yes, that but is. Christmas is not just some standalone event, event where Jesus, where we celebrate Christ's birth, but it's part of God's promise to us. Well, let's give him our thanks and praise. Our God, we do rejoice in the promise that you have made, promise shown to us at Christmas. It is a, a, a fulfillment, but also an anticipation for us of your promises being fully realized. We give you our joyful praise. We thank you for the great hope, the certainty that we know your promises will come to pass. I thank you for each of these women and their, their genuine care and love for you and for the people and their ladies in their circle. Pray that you would give them help and ability, especially covering so many verses as they gather next week in the midst of much activity of Christmas, of celebrating Christ's coming, that we might 
know and worship. We might stand in awe and reverence for the Redeemer from glory. We praise you for Christ, our priest, our king, the one who is with us, indwelling us by his spirit. We give you our joyful praise. I commit these women and their studies to you. In Christ Jesus, our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Amen.